The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Sharon, what's the matter? Are you feeling all right? Tell me the truth, Sharon. What's bothering you? What is this? <laughs> that's, that's suture. If I remember correctly, we do use suture to sew up in operations. May I see it? It's suture, all right. But I didn't bring this in on the operating tray. And I've handled enough suture to know what it feels like. This doesn't feel right. Sharon, I don't understand. What's this all about? If Dr. Heidman dies, you take over the research project. You do your own transplant operating. And you get full credit. Do you realize what you're saying? Dr. Heidemann survived the operation. What if you've done something during the operation that may cause him to die? Sharon, I know you're not very fond of me, but I never realized you were so obsessive. If I were you, I'd have that suture checked out. If you're so sure that I've done something that's going to make lovable old Heidemann suddenly drop dead in a few days, I'm sure the police would love to know about it. I suggest you take your suspicions to them. But before you lose yourself in your hysteria, would you please mark and file these bottles and put them in the cooler tray? Good morning, London. It's Thursday, March 5th, 2015. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. No, it's not right wing. It's just right. Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright and welcome to our show today, which is a bit of an offbeat one, I have to admit. Between now and noon, our broader themes will be about culture, legacies, life and death, immortality and storytelling. And it all begins with the passing away of Leonard Nimoy last week on Friday and ends with a local story out of our own city hall. And uh, Robert's taking another day off today. Expect him back next week, I think. But we'll work with that until then. You may recall that on last week's show, we featured an audio bite from uh, a previous episode of the show called Columbo. And that, in turn, somehow got me in the mood to actually sit down and watch some Columbo episodes later <laughs> in the week. So last week on Friday... The next Columbo that was lined up on my flash drive, which is how I generally watch TV, is on my flash drive, was episode 206, and it happened to be called A Stitch in Crime, and featured as its villain none other than Leonard Nimoy. I had no idea at the time, of course, that on the very day I was watching this episode, Leonard Nimoy had passed away at the age of 83. Ironically, of the same condition that he was treating in his role as a doctor in the episode of Columbo that I was watching. Now you just heard an audio bite from that very episode in our opener today, featuring the voices of Leonard Nimoy as the doctor and Anne Francis as his nurse, whom he later murders in that story. We'll hear a little more about that and from that Columbo episode a little later in the show. But it got me thinking, you know, there I sat watching some of my favorite and always rewatchable TV shows of the past, in which all three of the main characters are now deceased from this Columbo episode Leonard Nimoy, Anne Francis, and of course Peter Falk, three television icons, all in that one scene, and as of that day, all deceased. 
And back on August 2nd, 2012, we actually did a feature on Anne Francis, who was best known for her appearance in The Forbidden Planet with Leslie Nielsen, and for her role in the short-lived TV series Honey West. You can still check that show out online at www.justrightmedia.org. And don't forget, you can always write us with your suggestions and thoughts at feedback at justrightmedia.org as well. Now, as a Hollywood icon, the role Leonard Nimoy brought to life through his character of Mr. Spock may well be one of those that will continue to be enjoyed and appreciated for long into the foreseeable future in television entertainment. Given how often we've used audio bites from the Star Trek series to help us illustrate so many of our themes on past broadcasts of this show, it was, I have to tell you, it was really tempting for me to consider picking up some of the finer performances of Leonard Nimoy in that series to highlight our themes today. However, I resisted that temptation because on balance I didn't really think it would add anything new to the conversation, and that's what we want to do today. Although Leonard Nimoy and Star Trek will, of course, be a central part of our conversation today, I don't want to, to focus only on them per se, but on the greater meaning of Star Trek and other iconic shows that are like it, in the sense of how they both reflect and shape our culture. We talk about that a lot on this show. Although the older forms of art, theater, and other cultural pastimes are always with us, there can be no doubt that the true modern art of our day comes in the form of our television shows and movies, regardless of which technology you you use to have those things delivered to you. But Leonard Nimoy's passing got me and a lot of my family and friends to reminisce over how so many of our best-known actors and actresses have passed away, yet continue to live long and prosper posthumously in the form of the art and the stories and the legacies that they leave behind. This is from the Free Press, uh, February 28th, by Jim Slotek. Uh, Nimoy comfortable with legacy as Mr. Spock from the Free Press. And he writes, Nimoy, who died Friday, February 27th, from pulmonary disease at age 83, was in many ways the antithesis of his good friend and screenmate Shatner, laid back where Shatner was tightly wired. Even our birthdays are close, the Boston-born Nimoy said. He's much older than me by four days. I didn't realize they were that close. He's an obsessive worker, and I'm not. We'll hear a bit about that later on, too. He still wants to do as much acting as he possibly can. He enjoys traveling, and I've had enough of hotels and airports that we make ourselves available to each other. The article goes on to recount... Nimoy's past career, beginning with the Star Trek years, and with this story by Nimoy. He he says, We'd been shooting for several weeks during the summer of 1966 leading up to our launch in September. And there was a brochure from the NBC sales department, and the photographs of me had the points of their ears removed. Somebody took pains to do that. And I called uh, Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry, And he said that someone in the sales department had been concerned that people in the Bible Belt might be be offended by the idea of a devilish-looking character coming into their homes on their TV screens. At the same time, I was aware that NBC was saying to Roddenberry, keep this guy in the background. We don't want too much of that character up front. (laughs) Of course, shortly after the series went on the air, the mail started to tell them otherwise. Suddenly it was give us more Spock. Slotek then goes on to touch on some other highlights of Nimoy's career. Of all the 
cast of the original Star Trek, he writes, Nimoy was least likely to be seen complaining about stereotyping. He fell easily into another TV role post-Trek, that of the master of disguise, Paris, in Mission Impossible. That was a great series. I enjoyed that a lot. Hard to find online, though. Longtime fans remembered that Nimoy did touch down in London, Ontario at the Grand Theatre, where in the fall of 1980 he appeared for three performances of his Vincent, the Story of a Hero, in which Nimoy adapted and starred in the one-person drama about Van Gogh's life. Star Trek also paved the way for Nimoy's second career as a feature director. After lobbying to direct, he was given the reins for Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, in 1984. He followed that with the fourth installment, The Voyage Home, the most humorous and arguably most popular of the original cast films. I had a wonderful time making that movie, and I think it showed on the screen, Nimoy said. Right after that, I went to Toronto, and I directed Three Men and a Baby. The movie with Ted Danson, Steve Gutenberg, and Tom Selleck was, for a time, the highest-grossing comedy in history. I had no idea of that. And then he says, I was back in Toronto again shortly after to do a movie I've been very proud of, but which wasn't received well, and that movie was The Good Mother with Diane Keaton. It was very sincere, but it was not going to find an audience because it did not have a very satisfying ending. Post-retirement, Nimoy devoted himself almost exclusively to his remaining passion, which was photography. He had a website exhibitioning his work, which was mainly female nudes, with emphasis on plump, Rubenesque forms. He even shot fellow Vulcan Canadian actress Kim Cattrall during the filming of Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. There were roles in later years, Fox's sci-fi series Fringe, and cameos as Spock in Abrams' two Star Trek films. But retirement suited Nimoy. I don't want to do anything that takes me away from my personal life and the passions that I have now, he said. I had a fantastic run, over 50 years of it. I don't have a hunger for it anymore, he says. I don't need it emotionally, and I don't need it financially. End of article. Now, <laughs> the first thing I noticed was that this con- about the column, I mean, was that it was filed under pop culture. Isn't that an interesting term, pop culture? Which somehow suggests a fleeting, short-lived phenomenon, um, a subset of the greater culture that will soon disappear within the greater mix. A culture that, you know, just pops. (laughs) That's how I always looked at that word when I heard it. Oh, it's just one of those cultures that goes away before you even get a second look at it. But whether that happens to the Star Trek franchise or not is certainly a point of interest. But I don't think it really matters in the greater scheme of our cultural environment, which I'll be taking a closer look at as our show progresses. This is also from the London Free Press from The Buzz, March 2nd, 2015, with the heading, Shatner Pays Tribute to Star Trek Co-Star. Of course, you heard he got in a bit of trouble for, for apparently not showing up at Leonard Nimoy's uh, um, funeral, but he had reason for that. William Shatner may have been unable to attend Leonard Nimoy's funeral, but that didn't stop him from paying tribute to his friend and Star Trek Co-Star, taking to Twitter to remember Nimoy and answer fan questions about the two. After Shatner said on Twitter he would be unable to make it to the funeral because he was in Florida for a previously scheduled charity appearance, 
He garnered backlash, including a New York Daily News cover calling him Captain Jerk. Shatner posted that cover on his Twitter on Sunday saying, let's discuss. <laughs> that would be the way he would handle it. And uh, you'll recall that the New York Daily News is one of those tabloids from which several of the Cosby allegations originated, which we were talking about earlier. But the article continues, along with defending his decision to attend the charity event instead of going to the funeral, Shatner clarified his two daughters would be going to that funeral. Uh, Shatner fondly remembered Nimoy encouraging fans to ask questions about Nimoy's personality, their relationships, and memories from Star Trek. And that's what we're going to hear a little bit about now. Is some, All of the next clips you'll be hearing are all commonality, something to do with Leonard Nimoy. We'll be back. When I did Captain Kirk and we opened up in the first season, the notices were not particularly good about the show and not particularly good for me. Whatever they said about me was not as laudatory as it had in the past and what I was able to get sometimes in the future. In fact, Leonard Nimoy, who played uh, Mr. Spock uh, so well, so uh, uniquely, that although he didn't have spectacular things to do that we would think of uh, for an actor, he, he played the things so differently that it caught the attention of people and the critics and and uh, he had a nomination for uh, an Emmy, and, and none of that came my way. I had to find him. I wasn't Spock to begin with. I wasn't Spock-like. I was impassioned, and, and I was taught to be emotional as an actor. I learned to be, to express emotion, not to, to, to repress it or suppress it. Uh, so it was, it was against the grain that I was working, that I was helped by directors to find the way. The first time I said fascinating, I said it wrong. There was something happening in the, in the dramatic scene, and I, as Spock, said, fascinating. And the director said, no, 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 cool it out and yeah. do the scientific, curious approach to it. And I thought, oh, interesting, I'm going to lose this moment here because I'm, I should be part of the scene. And I didn't realize that I would establish a very clear identity for myself simply by saying, fascinating. And I did, and then the character began to emerge, and I began to understand the power of that. Dr. Cooper. Dr. Cooper? Is someone there? Down here, on your desk. <laughs> Spock? I need to speak with you. Fascinating. The only logical explanation is that this is a dream. It is not the only logical explanation. For example, you could be hallucinating after being hit on the head by, say, a coconut. Was I hit on the head by a coconut? I'm not going to dignify that with a response. <laughs> now, to the matter at hand, you need to play with the transporter toy. But it's mint in box. Yes, and to open it would destroy its value. But remember, like me, you also have a human half. Well, I'm not going to dignify that with a response. <laughs> Consider this. What is the purpose of a toy? To be played with. Therefore, to not play with it would be... Illogical. Oh, damn it, Spock, you're right. <laughs> I'll do it. Sheldon, wait. You have to wake up first. Oh, of course. 
Set phasers to dumb, right? <laughs> Hello, Alex, Dr. Mayfield. From my uh, 10 o'clock surgery, would you order up? Postponed? Why? Sharon? No. No, I haven't heard that. They found her dead. Oh, no. Where? Well, what happened? Do they have any idea who did it? We don't know yet. Just a minute. Who are you? Uh, Lieutenant Colombo, please. Oh. Alex, I'll talk to you later. Oh, I'm looking for Dr. Mayfield. I'm Dr. Mayfield. Oh, well, I'm very pleased to meet you. Terrible thing. Yeah. Young girl like that. She was my nurse, you know. Yeah. What was it, robbery? We're not sure of anything yet. Uh, that's really the reason I came up to see you, Doctor. I thought maybe you could be some help to us. In what way? Well, since you were close to her, Miss Martin, I thought maybe you could tell us something about her personal life. Oh. Well, then you think it wasn't robbery. Doctor, I don't rule anything out. I just want to get a complete picture. Well, I... Uh, I don't know how much I can tell you about her personal life. I mean, we worked together, but she was much closer to my associate, Dr. Heidemann. Yeah, I wanted to see him, but, uh... See, I don't even want this. I haven't had coffee yet. Mm. Uh, where was I? Oh, Dr. Heidemann, yeah. I wanted to see him, but I found out he just had an operation. Oh, so thanks for reminding me. I should be checking on him. He's my patient, you know. You must be a terrific surgeon. Well, Dr. Heidemann and I do share a mutual respect. Oh, that? Oh, yeah, he must think you're very good. No, actually, Doctor, I was referring to your great concentration. Well, how is that, Lieutenant? Well, when I came in, you see, you were getting the news of the, your nurse's death on the phone. I could see you were terribly upset. But while you were on the phone, you reset your desk clock. Well, I failed to see the virtue in that. Oh, you're too modest, Doc. No, most people, they'd be in such a state of shock, they'd never be able to split their concentration like that. The way you did, setting your clock there. Well, it, uh, it must have been a purely reflexive reaction. I, I really don't remember doing it. But would you excuse me? Oh, sure, yeah. Sorry I detained you. Not at all. Mm. Uh, is there a coffee machine on this floor? No. Dr. Hart, please. <laughs> and, of course, Colombo has his victim already in his sights right from the beginning. <laughs> what we just heard were excerpts from William Shatner's excellent interview documentary movie called The Captains. If you've never seen it, you've got to watch it. And, uh, and we also heard from a Leonard Nimoy interview with Charlie Ro Rose and from The Big Bang Theory, of course, and the last one from Columbo, the common thread to all being Leonard Nimoy himself. The character of Columbo, of course, was played by Peter Falk, who passed away many years ago and whose life in retirement, as I understand it, was not so unsimilar from that of Leonard Nimoy. Except not photography, he was more into art, and he painted a lot of oil paintings, and apparently he was pretty good at the talent, too. But, you know, every time I, I hear about a well-known actor or actress passing away, I just can't help but reflect on my own mortality and the fact that each and every one of us will at some time suffer the same fate. And although the feeling eventually passes, 
you know, when an actor very recently has passed away and you find yourself watching a movie or TV show in which they appear, you almost can't help but be distracted by the fact that that actor is no longer with us. For all of our willingness and ability to suspend our disbelief with respect to any of the characters or roles played by the actors, the actor himself is very much a real person, separate from the role played, and we can't help but be made aware of it, you know? And at the same time, I often wonder how the actors themselves deal with their own eventual passings, given the fact that they know that they'll continue to be watched and heard long after they pass away. The same circumstances obviously applies to writers, and one of my favorite writers of the early 20th century was a fellow named H.L. Mencken, who actually spoke directly to this very observation that I'm making. And this was from his book, The Minority Report, and uh, it's about H.L. Mencken on death and immortality, and he writes, or he wrote, (laughs) It is folly to try to beat death. One second after my heart stops thumping, I shall not know or care what becomes of all my books and articles. Why then do I keep my records in order and make plans for their preservation after I am an angel in heaven? I suppose the real reason is that a man so generally diligent and energetic as I have been finds it psychologically impossible to resign the game altogether. I know very well that oblivion will engulf me soon or late, and probably very soon, he said that because he knew he was ill at the time, but I simply cannot resist trying to push it back by a few inches. Civilized man, indeed, is essentially essentially indomitable. He refuses to yield to the natural laws that have him in their grip. His life is always a struggle against the inevitable, in Christian terms, a rebellion against God. I'll know nothing of it when it happens, but it caresses my ego today to think of men reading me half a century after I am gone. This seems superficially to to be mere vanity, he says, but it is probably something more. That something is a sound impulse, the moving force behind all cultural progress. To take an active hand in the unfolding of human life on this sorry ball, every man above the level of a clod is impelled to that participation and every such man desires his contribution to last as long as possible. Very interesting statement. I wonder if he had ever envisaged that his words would be read in a form such as this, because, of course, none of the technology we have today existed back then. He just came in, actually passed away just about the time the television was coming into its, uh, its prime time. But one such man who certainly can consider his contribution to our culture is William Shatner, whose continued successful career in acting has probably exceeded everyone's original expectations. He's still going very strong today. According to this article, Shatner wants Star Wars, says the London Free Press article of August 7th of uh, last year. And it says Captain Kirk wants J.J. Abrams to know he's down for more space adventures, written by Steve Tilley. Captain Kirk on board the Millennium Falcon? Our geek brains just exploded, he writes. William Shatner, Canadian national treasure, and the man who gave us T.J. Hooker, Denny Crane, and Captain James T. Kirk, says he'd be up for a role in the upcoming Star Wars Episode Seven if director J.J. Abrams could find a way to fit him in. Only slightly lower on the implausibility scale, 
Shatner also said he'd happily reprise his role as Captain Kirk in the third film of the rebooted Star Trek franchise, hitting theaters in 2016. The first two movies were directed by Abrams. J.J.'s a buddy, said Shatner. But the trick would be for someone to come up with an idea of how to put the aging two-sizes-larger captain in the movie. (laughs) I was thinking when I read that, so I guess that means that when Shatner was hoping for Abrams to find a way to fit him in, he meant it literally. (laughs) Oh, that's a cruel joke. Shatner couldn't resist ribbing his friend Leonard Nimoy, who played an older version of, of, of his own character, Spock, in 2009's Star Trek and popped up briefly in last year's 2013 Star Trek Into Darkness. I said to Leonard Nimoy when I saw him in the movie, you know you're old when you go back in time, and you're still old. (laughs) It would have been uh, a trickier proposition to bring Kirk back, though. The heroic captain was killed in 1994 Star Trek Generations, drawing his last breath with Star Trek, the next generation's captain Jean-Luc Picard, played by Patrick Stewart by his side. Well, sure enough, that's that article. And then, well, just about two months later, in the September 30th buzz column of the London Free Press, there was the headline, The Return of Kirk? William Shatner is considering a return to the Star Trek franchise after turning down director J.J. Abrams' advances to feature in the first of the filmmaker's new movies. Isn't that interesting that he turned that one down? Probably because he was busy doing a lot of his other shows. The original Captain Kirk has confirmed Abrams, who is producer of the third film in the update series, has reached out to him again, and this time Shatner is interested. Speaking at the Nashville Comic Con in Tennessee, Shatner told fans he would be interested if the role is meaningful, adding he would be delighted to be part of Star Trek III, which will be directed by Bob Orkey, so it's not going to be directed by Abrams, but he's producing it. Now, what we're about to hear is taken from William Shatner's The Captains, and the next voice you will hear is that of actress Kate Mulgrew, um, who played Captain Janeway of the Starship Voyager uh, in the Star Trek series of the same name. In conversation with William Shatner on the subject, uh, you know, of the Star Trek series, or sorry, on the subject of death and dying, actually. They were really getting serious. Great movie. You would not believe the things they talk about in that movie, The Captains. And I think this is perhaps one of the most revealing and honest statements on the subject of death and dying that you might find anywhere. If you've ever wondered why William Shatner has remained so active and continuously pursuing his career of acting well into his 80s, you'll wonder no more after hearing this. Mr. Shatner, you're well-traveled, well-read, you've loved often and well, you've experienced a great deal of grief, and probably no end of problems that none of us will ever know. So I have to conclude that you're an examined person. So I want you to really answer this question. When you die, do you believe that there is a life after that? Or do you believe that it is ashes to ashes, dust to dust? When I had to play the death of Captain Kirk, the night before, I said to myself, I have to look at the moment of death. How will I feel? And so I imagined myself on the threshold. I fainted once when I drank a cold beer after a hot workout. 
And I went, and I went, and I went out. I chuggle lugged a cold beer, and I was sitting there, and I passed out, and I was, 20 seconds later, I was like, what happened? But I remember the closing in, yes, the irising in of my feeling. And like, I thought, holy God, I'm going to zoom, and I was out. So what is that moment of death? Where is that margin that you say, I'm alive and I'm dying? I'm dead. I had to imagine that. Then I had to characterize it by what would Captain Kirk do. So there's two answers here. One is the death of Captain Kirk, I imagined. Kirk, with a lifetime of looking at the... The alien. The right. alien coming towards right, you. Right, right, right. And instead of fear, I always played, wow, look at that. Oh, there's giant teeth is coming towards me. That sort of thing, awe and wonder. I figured Kirk would look at the moment of death and go, Oh my. It was fun. Oh my. I'm frightened of death. I'm scared. Are you? Yeah. I thrust it out of my mind, and probably by the dint of work, because I know death is over my shoulder, by the dint of work that I'm doing, I'm alive. By the, by the passion I feel for my wife, I'm alive. By my family affairs, I hold them so close, I, 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 I'm alive. But death is right there, and I'm fearful. I'm panicked. I'm what are you fearful of? Losing all this. Then as the show continued, I would get things like, Hey, beam me up, Scotty. A sort of, what it seemed to me, a sort of derisive tone. And then when the, my series was over, and a few years later there began conventions, I was asked to do the first convention. And I thought, I'm not going to do a convention with all those people in costumes and makeup and all this. And then after a few conventions, 15,000 people would attend. And I thought, well, I, 15,000 people, I guess you can't ignore that. Mm -hmm. So I went on and I, I would do these conventions and there'd be all these people in wardrobe and costume. And what's it like to be Captain Kirk? And hey, Captain, and, and they're taking me as Captain Kirk. And I'm not Captain Kirk, I'm William Shatner. And I, more, and I think the right word is derisive. I realized on that airplane that I was slightly embarrassed about playing Captain Kirk. I never thought of it that way. But I thought, all these people that would come up to me, and one who came up to me in Toronto when we landed to pick up Canadian crew, the head of uh, uh, Bombardier said what a fan he was of me, and that he had become an aeronautical engineer because of what um, my appeal to him. And as I know, and I want to hear about it, so many people have come up and said, my life has changed 
as a result of seeing you work. Mm -hmm. And what I have done always in the past was go, oh yeah. I'd say to myself, yeah, right, not really. I mean, you're, you're, I'm part of this Hollywood mystique, you guys thing, and you think I affect your life, but not really. I would deny it, even if I didn't so in front of them. Uh, sure. And for the first time, when, when the head of, uh, the CEO of Bombardier said I was affected for the first time because I'm doing research on you, I looked at him and I thought, is it possible that what I did all those years ago really did affect him? And how true that is. That was actually William Shatner speaking to, um, to Patrick Stewart in that particular segment that we just heard. In fact, Shatner's epiphany about the effect of his past work, you know, on the effect it's had, actually in the case of Star Trek, is an effect that will continue to affect people well into the future. Star Trek was perhaps one of the first syndicated television series <clears throat> that because it was recorded and then rerun, maximizing the it is written principle that you hear Robert and I talk about so much, it was made possible to have that effect of affecting people. Had the series only aired once, I don't think we'd be sitting here talking about Star Trek, William Shatner, or Leonard Nimoy. You know, it is written, as Robert Vaughn and I so often remind ourselves, if you didn't write it down, it never happened. But more importantly, and assuming you have taken the care to write it down, so to speak, then potentially you have in your hands the power to actually affect the culture of which you are but a small part. I'm sure I've mentioned this before, but I still recall the dilemma that was posed to me by Jim Chapman on a past episode of Left, Right, and Center, recorded right here at CHRW. And yes, we have a recording of it, and it's our plan to archive it, along with the other 60 or so CHRW Left, Right, and Centers that still need to be archived. But Jim's question concerned the challenge of how to change what one might regard as negative aspects of a culture into positive ones. And my reply to him was that the solution has to be promoted through art and entertainment. In fact, the very example I used was the Star Trek series, which was, um, or which among other things, was the first series to feature a multiracial cast on a primetime TV show. The culture of the time was uniracial, especially in the field of broadcast television. Now, I would stress that the crew of the Enterprise was multiracial, not multicultural, since they were all united in defending a single culture through the Federation, and clearly that was a culture of freedom, a culture not so far removed from the ideal envisioned by author-philosopher Ayn Rand, a culture of freedom of choice, individual rights, the rule of law, and the use of force only in the defense of those principles. On the attempts to change a culture, the following quote is again taken from H.L. Mencken, the brilliant writer of the early 20th century who passed away just as television was becoming a cultural force in North America, which was 1956 in his case. His observation seems to reflect a point of view that was n is not unlike that of Salim Mansour's when he appeared on our show two weeks ago. The inertia of a culture is not an easy one to overcome. And in our haste to impose Western values on non-Western cultures, we risk losing our own culture in the process. Here's what H.L. Mencken had to say on it again from his Minority Report, and I quote, It is beginning to be realized that trying to introduce cultural patterns by legislation is a hopeless business, but it is still believed more or less that they may be inculcated by education. 
Both beliefs, it seems to me, are evidences of a low degree of culture. Culture itself is neither education nor lawmaking. It is, it, it is an atmosphere and a heritage, say that of the Renaissance or that of the pre-revolutionary 18th century. Take a boy from one cultural milieu and try to outfit him with the ideas, traditions, tastes, and prejudices of another, and you succeed only in bewildering and demoralizing him. The new patterns of thought and feeling simply do not fit him. You have made him uncomfortable and unhappy in precisely the same way that tight shoes, high-waisted pants, or scratchy underwear would make him uncomfortable and unhappy. He may learn to endure them, endure them but they remain unnatural to him. The average American college, by teaching its students to be ashamed of their forefathers, does not actually elevate them in the scale of culture. All it does is to make hollow snobs of them, he said. Okay, legislation, of course, can affect certain behaviors to a limited degree, but they cannot impose values, which are really what exist at the core of what we call culture. You can teach those values, of course, but they'll never become ingrained or morph into a culture until they're routinely understood and practiced. If you want an example of this, just look at the debate about Ontario's new sex ed curriculum, you know, a, a curriculum that according to many teaches the wrong values, or look at the situation in the Ukraine. If ever there was a culture clash to observe under near test tube conditions, that one's beginning to rival the clash that we see daily in the Middle East. In fact, that's the very reason we hear of genocide and the complete annihilation of tribes and groups of people who experience has taught us cannot simply be ruled or controlled by those of differing cultures. The only way they can think of to deal with them is to kill the undesirable culture, and that is to, ki to kill its adherents. So while legislation and education may have proven relatively ineffective at changing a culture, you know, William Shatner may, may well be one of those few lucky people who can actually experience the effect of his past work in a way that H.L. Mencken could never conceive. Mencken took pleasure in imagining how people might be reading his works 50 years into the future. Hollywood has already had longer than a 50-year history, and the great shows continue to be great. Shatner lived long enough to see at least the beginnings of the tremendous effect that his work, particularly in Star Trek, will continue have to have on the future. Now, why Star Trek and not, say, T.J. Hooker, Boston Legal, or Columbo, or Mission Impossible, or a host of other excellent shows? Would we be talking about Leonard Nimoy, William Shatner, and other Star Trek actors in the same light if they'd only appeared in the other TV shows with which we associate them? I think not. What is it about the nature of the Star Trek series that set it above the rest in terms of its popularity and longevity? Star Trek filled a void that was not one of mere entertainment, sci-fi, or adventure, even though it was all of these things. It filled a philosophical void. Star Trek projected an ideal into the future, a society that did not yet exist, but that could exist, in terms of the values and philosophy that that future represented. At its best, Star Trek represented exactly the kind of literary romanticism that Robert and I have talked about frequently on this show. It is the attraction of making that positive future become a reality that I believe is what motivates people, and therefore cultures, to adapt and change over time. Of course, that process works both ways. Bad or demoralizing works of art, including TV shows and movies, can work in the opposite direction, that is, to move a culture away from freedom and in the wrong direction. As a rule, 
though with very few exceptions, Star Trek moved in the right direction. Thanks to its creator, Gene Roddenberry, its writers <coughs> and directors, who are actually the real source of the concept and ideas that were being expressed by the actors. When an actor succeeds in portraying the vision of another person, but be he a writer or director or whatever, as intended, then that actor has done his job and can legitimately claim some ownership in the creation of that vision and ideal. And after an identity is established, the actor pretty much owns it. So to wrap up, Leonard Nimoy has now passed on from life to immortality in the only form that he can continue to exist among the living, in the form of the art that he helped create which is why I feel no contradiction when I say both to Leonard Nimoy and to all the other great actors who have passed away but whose work remains with us, live long and prosper. Oh, dear. Two sons and no sunscreen. Hello again, Sheldon. What is it now, Tiny Spock? I am very disappointed in you. You broke your toy and switched it with Leonard's. You should be ashamed of yourself. You're the one who told me to play with it. If I told you to jump off the bridge of the Enterprise, would you do it? Oh, if I got on the bridge of the Enterprise, I would never, ever leave. Trust me, it gets old after a while. <laughs> you must right your wrong, Sheldon. Why? I got away with it. Leonard has his toy, and he's never going to open it, so he won't know it's broken. And I have a toy that isn't broken. Everybody's happy. Well, I am unhappy. I thought where you come from, they don't have emotions. I come from a factory in Taiwan. Now do the right thing. You know what you are? Well, you're a green-blooded buzzkill. Perhaps it's time you beam on out of here. Fine. I will just use the transporter. Oh, right. You broke it. <laughs> you are never going to win going straight at him. If he thought there was any chance of that, then he wouldn't have stayed in that apartment. We'll take care of the rest of the booking's details later. Anything on the van? No, not yet. You know, when I first got here, I couldn't figure out what Beckett saw in you. But you know what she said? He sees the story. I see the evidence where it leads, but... He sees the story. That man got inside your head and you let him. You want to help her? You got to get inside his. What's his story? What's his next move going to be? Now you figure that out and we'll find her. <laughs> so what's your story? You know, connecting the dots between facts and events in a story is what actually makes the story. What's increasingly distressing these days is that so much of what passes as news reporting and journalism is all about disconnecting the dots so that the real story can never be told. 
to it. Here's an article from the pages of the Free Press this past February 28th that raises two entirely separate issues on the local level here in London. One, the style of journalism itself, and two, the subject being discussed and reported on. That is the actual story. Written by Patrick Maloney in the Saturday Free Press, February 28th, news analysis. Debate ends with a seemingly harmless addition to a council document. London politicians spent 90 minutes debating 12-word change to Strategic Plan 237. And he writes, two genders, 12 words, 15 politicians, a 90-minute debate. Man, oh man, things can get complicated quick at City Hall. In a discussion that raises questions about gender equality, London hiring practices, and political correctness, a seemingly harmless addition to a council document sparked a surprising conflict. Thursday, Mayor Matt Brown and London's 14 councillors tucked back into their strategic plan, a relatively obscure exercise to produce what Brown calls a guidepost for the next four years. But the debate, equivalent of a firecracker, turned into a political pipe bomb amid opposite views from councillor newcomer Maureen Cassidy and Bill Armstrong, London's longest-serving politician. Cassidy urged a nod to gender was a necessary addition to signal City Hall wants more women in its political and senior staff ranks. Armstrong called the tone of her comments offensive enough that they turned the whole debate toxic. The majority agreed with Cassidy, so a single sentence, just 12 words, was added to the document. Consider a gender lens during the development and execution of new policies. But it took 90 minutes of debate to get there. If gender is not explicitly stated in the strategic plan, it's not even going to be considered, said Maureen Cassidy, who is serving as deputy mayor this year. Several of her colleagues agreed with 12 of 15 voting in support of the change. While the 12-word motion has little to do with how citizens vote or how City Hall hires, Cassidy's comments and Armstrong's criticisms both veered into that topic. It needs to guide our internal policies, she said. Hiring, recruitment, mentoring, moving staff up through the ranks. There are a lot of women working here, but they get to a certain level and then we've got a lot of men. Among the city's 10 highest ranking bureaucrats, three are women, and Londoners elected women to four of the 15 spots on council last fall. Armstrong wasn't backing down. And uh, she, was question she was questioning the integrity of our administration, he said. It's plain and simple, all people are treated equally, so it doesn't have to be said. Squire skipped the vote as a protest, saying he was uncomfortable that the discussion of diversity and inclusion was being framed as a woman's issue. I want to get away from anything that suggests there's one group that has a monopoly on discrimination or barriers. And, of course, Cassidy was making no apologies. The goal is that there should be an equal voice for all the people in London. She cited a comment from Councillor Jesse Helmer on how gender lens can apply when discussing whether the city is safe. Politicians should consider the fact that late-night strolls through downtown can feel very different for men and women. So, interesting article there, you know, when Cassidy says that an example of a gender lens is for politicians to consider the fact that late night strolls through downtown can feel very different for men and women, uh, this means absolutely nothing. It's a meaningless statement. It's like a floating expectation within a floating abstraction. I mean, can't you see it? Two different women could feel exactly the opposite of each other when it comes to feeling safe downtown. And the same applies for two different men. And what about the people who are actually committing the crimes? Do they feel safe when they go downtown?
And in the end, in, the conversa- uh, in, the, in consideration of gender distinctions being made by political representatives, the added clause can only mean that one group should be treated differently than another, based upon, quote, a consideration that has no relation to the given problem at hand, which they say is safety. Now, it seems to me that safety is safety. If there's not enough lighting at night to make a certain area feel more secure... You can't reasonably argue that women should have the extra lighting while men should not. This doesn't make sense. We properly give gender considerations to those issues where gender is a meaningful factor in the issue being discussed. Like, for example, public washrooms separated by male and female, which, ironically, the current trend seems to be moving away even from that. Uh, from gender-separated washrooms. If you saw the front page of the paper the other day where you can see some of the high schools are already bringing in, uh, you know, multi-gender washrooms, um, which, of course, totally ignores the biological differences between the sexes. I don't know if you have urinals in a women's washroom or if you would have to have them, uh, but nor would it be a condition of safety. Worse, if the Free Press article is to be believed... Cassidy wants to, quote, signal City Hall wants more women in its political and senior staff ranks. Well, this is not a call for gender equity in the field of opportunity. It is a call for gender equity in the field of results. Councillor Armstrong, in being one of the three councillors who did not support the additional clause, argued that, quote, plain and simple, all people are treated equally, so it doesn't have to be said. End quote. Well, I'm not sure I follow this logic. If all people are treated equally now, and you want to signal City Hall wants more women, then obviously it does have to be said. It's a call for a change from the current equal treatment that we're being told that they're getting in City Hall, isn't it? And then there's the second part of this, you know, Pat Maloney's commentary presented as news analysis. I'm not sure that I saw a separate news item on this that he analyzed, but that was how it was presented. It was on the front page of the paper. And, you know, he'll say, like, use the numbers like 2, 12, 15, and 90, um, as if ideas and concepts and intentions can be boiled down to the number of words with which they are expressed. This is just Pat Maloney's way of trying, I think, to put down or belittle objectors to the idea that is being presented. To use the same logic, you could say, you know, if I wanted to be silly about it, you know, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. Hey, those are only four words, (laughs) clearly not worth a discussion. After all, how much meaning can you possibly draw from, well, just four words? Just four, you know, just four. (laughs) Seemingly harmless words? Words spoken by politicians represent their intentions. Always remember that. And they're usually followed by action, which is in the form of laws, uh, rules, regulations, um, taxes, and hiring practices. So, um, to wit, you know, it, the statement, the 12 words, quote, needs to guide our internal policies, end quote, said Cassidy. And she says, hiring, recruitment, mentoring, moving staff up through the ranks. And then she says, there are a lot of women working here, but they get to a certain level, and then we've got a lot of men. Uh, very interesting, because I found some articles recently that just would suggest the opposite, that already studies are coming out that in other levels of government, um, the ratio of women to men is already over 50%, and certainly 
there, you can't really say there are barriers there. Good heavens, two of, two, two of the three political parties in Ontario are headed by women, and there's a possibility the third one will be too. Um, so I can't really say that the issue of women being unequally um, apportioned, let's put it that way, on various councils and committees is a sign of anything except for the roll of the dice or the way that they have made their choices. You can't really put too much more onto that. But um, despite this, Maloney writes, the 12-word motion has little to do with how citizens vote or how City Hall hires. Well, maybe not today, but tomorrow, when these politicians get to vote on their 12 words, it will be all about how citizens vote or how City Hall hires. I found that Pat Maloney rarely if ever, maybe this is true of a lot of reporters in in daily newspapers, they never consider the full context of an issue in their free press reports. I think that's his strategic plan, actually. Tell the public what he thinks about the seemingly harmless words and don't report what should be known, the negative consequences that we know will result if those words are acted upon. But at least he reports some facts about the side that he supports. Their quoted words stand on their own. There is little ambiguity about the words or intention of those words, especially as expressed by Councillor Cassidy. Words have meanings. Even when reporters who report them don't understand them or who do understand them but try to conceal the objective of those words and the consequences of any action based on these words is completely predictable. I mean, again, you know, 2, 12, 15, 90. These are free-floating numbers that have no meaning relative to the issue at hand. And I think that's one of the reasons why you see reporters like Maloney do their best to distract us with the numbers. But 2, 12, 15, 90, those are really not the numbers that we need to be concerned about. Here are the real concerning numbers. One town one newspaper, one reporter, one perspective, and no story. And as we learned earlier in the show today, when you have no story, you won't have a history and you won't have anything to go back on. So that's it. That's our show for today. We've talked about a number of things, uh, including the passing of Leonard Nimoy, which I wanted to just add one little comment that I found just this morning, Leonard Nimoy in his own words. Uh, speaking to Will, Bill Shatner, <laughs> he says, Bill, you're being considered for Governor General of Canada. Do it. Finally a chance to do something with your life. <laughs> that was Leonard Nimoy's 2010 plea for William Shatner to become Governor General of Canada. Got a bit of a kick out of that. But that's our show for today. And here, because these are our concerning numbers, and that's the time of day, which tells me that we're done for this outing and must return to continue our adventure again next week. So join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see ya. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Oh, good, Penny. You're here to exchange gifts. <laughs> okay, here. Oh, a napkin. Turn it over. To Sheldon. Live long and prosper. Leonard Nimoy. He came into the restaurant. Sorry, the napkin's dirty. He wiped his mouth with it. 
possess the DNA of Leonard Nimoy? Show. 